Hebrews. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read two of the more controversial texts in the Bible. In Hebrews, we'll start in chapter 6 with verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then over to chapter 10 starting with verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. When I was in uh, Malaysia about a month or so ago, uh, Rich Miller, uh, the director of Freedom in Christ Ministries in the United States, uh, gave a really good talk on the subject of hell. And it just reminds us that in these days we don't really think so much about hell. Uh, we forget about how the, uh, the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in the United States, many attribute part of the ignition of that to uh, a sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, he talked about 
how people were just precariously being held over the fires of hell and, and could fall in at any moment uh, if they didn't repent. And it was very interesting because Edwards was not kind of a flamboyant preacher. He wasn't a revivalist kind of preacher. In fact, uh, from what I understand, he used to read his sermons and his head was always buried in his notes. And so as he's reading this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which you can look up online and get the text to, uh, the people apparently were, were just crying out and there was weeping and, and incredible manifestations uh, for that response. But today, when you think about hell, you think about it in terms of really one of the, the big uh, issues that people have with Christianity. You get people all the time, well, you know, how can a loving God you know, send people to hell, cast people into hell. Why, why would God do something like that? And there's another kind of related issue that often comes into the, the conversation there when you're talking about that, and that is the idea, what about Christians? You know, can, is it possible that, that we could lose our salvation? Is it possible that we could think we have everything together and then all of a sudden die and wake up in a very hot place without any air conditioning? You know, can that happen to us? Uh, and then you get kind of distortions of this. You know, some people say, well, once saved, always saved. And, and then people, we react to that rather negatively and rather rightly negatively because that's not a historic teaching. Uh, we, we react to it from the idea that, well, you can just do anything you want to uh, once you're saved by grace. And it doesn't really matter because you're saved by grace. And so you just live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. And, and these kinds of issues swirl around a bit in the body of Christ. And for the most part, we don't talk about them too much. You might add to this uh, another issue that we know that is coming uh, and is here a little bit, and it's called the great falling away or the great apostasy. And Jesus prophesied uh, that uh, before he came again, there would be this tremendous falling away where many people who seemed to be Christians, who seemed to be following God, suddenly stopped following God. And their love grows cold and they start hating one another and opposing one another and handing one another over. And, and so these are some of the more difficult issues that we deal with in the body of Christ and we wrestle with a bit. And these texts that I read in Hebrews uh, really encapsulate a lot of these different kinds of issues and these different kinds of concerns. Well, I want to let you know today that I will conclusively not answer all of your questions. In fact, when you look at these two passages in Hebrews, they are some, the book of Hebrews is the most difficult Greek in the entire New Testament. It is very, very difficult Greek to understand. It's very, very difficult to translate. Uh, and many, many scholars uh, debate this and wrestle with this uh, and struggle with this. And, and if you go online, you're going to find a dozen different, dozen or more different views uh, of different verses and, and different things of what all of this means. But what I will do today is give you my attempt at wrestling with these a little bit and pointing us in a direction so that we can begin to understand how to answer, how to deal with some of these very difficult questions and more importantly, what they all mean for us. Because 
most of the time, what happens, in my opinion, is as people wrestle with these texts, they often lose focus on their own salvation. They lose focus on their own walk with Jesus Christ. And we need to understand what these texts say to us as believers in the body of Christ. The first thing I want to deal with is this whole question of eternal judgment. I thought it's interesting here in chapter 6 when uh, uh, the writer to the Hebrews is uh, he's writing here and he says, we're going to leave the elementary doctrine so that we can go on to maturity in Jesus. And one of the elementary doctrines that we want to leave is this doctrine of eternal judgment. The reality is that there is an eternal judgment. That God does hold people to account and the day will come when everybody stands before God. We all stand before God and we all give account and there will be an eternal judgment. And the text of the scriptures, no matter how you wrestle with them, demonstrate to us that the eternal judgment of God in the negative way is not going to be a happy experience. In fact, it's going to be painful, it will be miserable, and whatever happens, we will spend an eternity, those judged, uh, uh, those judged will spend an eternity separate from God, separate from fellowship. The judgment of God is an eternal judgment. And this means that those who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ will experience this judgment. There's no way to get around it. The scriptures are clear that Jesus and faith in Jesus Christ is the only escape. It's the only way to avoid this eternal judgment and be declared righteous and get to go into the God's heavenly kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to create. Now the question comes, why would a loving God have something like eternal judgment. The reason is because God is a loving God. You know, most of the time when we talk about God's judgment, we talk about it in terms of God's wrath. It's a bit like the Jonathan Edwards thing where he says, you know, we're all just sinners in the hands of an angry God. And many times when you hear hell preached, it's preached from the perspective of God's wrath or God's anger or uh, are God's vengeance, and it gives us picture of God as somebody who is mean-spirited and horrible. And what's worse, there, there's some extreme forms of Calvinism, uh, forms of Calvinism that Calvin himself would not support, uh, that look and say, well, and, and God has just arbitrarily decided who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven. So in this arbitrariness of God, you know, somehow there are people who are, are just, they're going to go to hell and there's no choice about it. And so you might as well, you know, buy your air conditioning before you die and put it in your, your coffin with you because that's the way you're going to go. And this depiction of God is not really a biblical depiction of the, the totality of who God is. God does have wrath. God does have vengeance. As the text it says in, in Hebrews 10, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the text is very clear about that throughout the scriptures. It does belong to God. But the fundamental question is, 
why would God do this? And it's not because God is an angry God. It is because God is a loving God. Now this may not seem to make sense. But actually, when you begin to look at it, it makes perfect sense. Imagine a context. One of the popular things in, in, in cinema and TV today are zombie films. You know, it's all about these zombies, and I won't, you know, go into detail because of the children here. I don't want to give any children bad dreams tonight, you know, thinking about zombies and then me being blamed for that. And I don't want any of you calling me in the middle of the night to pray for your children because they're having the bad dreams, okay? So, anyway, so, so you know the backstory behind these films. And in, in various ways, somehow these zombified people, they get some kind of disease that comes upon them and it turns them into these, these horrible creatures that then pass the disease around and continue to destroy humanity. Now imagine this scenario, you're, you're, you're doing your own zombie film, and imagine this scenario where you have a hundred people, and zombies can't die, okay? So you've got a hundred people, and they're all zombified, but you have the cure for their zombification. Now you notice how I created some new words here. You have the cure for their zombification. And you offer them the cure for their zombification, and they absolutely refuse to take the cure, even though they know that this will heal them. Maybe some of them like being zombies. You know, they like the perks of zombification, the not dying thing, you know, three square meals, uh, you know, of other people, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But for whatever reason, they refuse, absolutely refuse to accept the cure that they are freely offered. They don't have to pay for it. In fact, there was one human being that was perfectly uh, immune to this zombification. And this one human being offered up his blood to provide the cure for every other human being free of charge. And yet these people refuse to accept the cure. What do you do? Do you say, oh, you know, that's okay. You know, I'm a loving guy and I hate to see these zombies because they're people after all. Uh, and some of them are good loving people with nice families and stuff. I hate to see these zombies, you know, put in a cage and confined for all eternity for the protection of the rest of humanity. I think we need free range zombies and we just let them out and let them go and infect everybody. Is that loving? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is not loving. It is not loving. And what if it was your child that had willingly sacrificed himself to provide his blood for the cure? And you were offering the cure free of charge that your child himself purchased by his death. Would it be loving to say, oh, that's fine, just reject the cure, reject what my son has done? It would not. In fact, God is determined to remove everything that hinders love. God will remove everything from creation that hinders love. God will remove everything that prevents people from experiencing love. God will remove everything 
that prevents people from knowing love. God will remove everything that prevents people from giving love. And to do that, it requires the eternal judgment of God. And God also will remove everything, that is, everyone who absolutely refuses to receive his perfect offering of love in his son Jesus Christ. The eternal judgment of God is a manifestation of his love. And if God would allow sin and allow death and allow hell free reign in our humanity in perpetuity, that would be the most unloving thing that our God could do. But we have a loving God who, I imagine this breaks God's heart, who has eternal judgment for those who refuse his love and eternal judgment for those who are determined to hinder love in perpetuity. And this is a fundamental that we have to understand. And so often we don't. Because what happens is most people don't see that sin is a form of zombification. And that the evil that we do, even though most of the time we don't think we do all that much evil, the evil that we do hinders love and destroys love and destroys that in this world. And so God's eternal judgment is God manifesting his love for the sake of our salvation. And since God is love himself, if we reject love, we reject God. If we hinder love, we are trying to hinder God. And so he has to deal with that. So that's that eternal judgment. And we need to understand that. And we need to understand that thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, we are free from the eternal judgment because we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And we have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. And that's a really exciting thing. But that leads us to the next challenge, so to speak, and that is the challenge of falling away. What about all of those people that we know who seem to be following Jesus, who seem to be doing a really good job of it, and then suddenly they no longer follow Jesus? What do we do with all those people that have been touched in some way by the Spirit of God and then turn away from that touch, from that love? What happens? What's going on when people walk away from the faith? And Hebrews kind of begins to deal with this issue. You know, throughout Hebrews, Hebrews gives us, the writer gives us many different warnings. And he's warning us, I mean, there's, there's much more than these two passages. If you, if you read throughout the book, it starts in, in chapter 2 and goes all the way into chapter 12. Uh, different kinds of warnings and challenges and things like that that the writer to the Hebrews has given us. Because he knows that just like there are things that can hinder love, there are also things that can hinder our growth in Jesus Christ. Just as there are those things that can hinder love, there are also those things that will hinder the release of God's blessing in us. And the writer to the Hebrews does not want that to happen. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews, the whole theme of this book is encouraging us to be faithful because Jesus is faithful. That's the message of Hebrews. And if you take any passage outside that overall message of Hebrews, you always distort what the writer is saying. His message is, 
Be faithful, people of God, because Jesus, as your great high priest, is faithful for you. And he won't let you go. And so you need to be faithful. You need to walk in that faithfulness and live in that faithfulness. But the writer also acknowledges that there will be people who do not do this, and he is warning the Hebrews about this. He's warning us about this, how to recognize it, and how to avoid becoming one of those people. And in Hebrews 6, he's talking about one kind of person, and in Hebrews 10, he's talking about another kind of person, but these two people are people who fall away from their faith. These two people are people who fall away from the church, who fall away from Christianity, who don't follow Jesus, who end up rejecting him. And they do it in two kinds of ways. And so we want to look at each one of those. First, we'll look at, at Hebrews chapter 6, if you want to turn in there. Uh, the writer here describes the Hebrews chapter 6 person. And he says a number of things about him. At first glance, we can think that he's talking about Christians. But actually, when we read what he's really saying, we realize he's not talking about people who are Christians, but people who seem to be Christian. There are a lot of people in the body of Christ around the world who look like Christians, but are not. Who might even think they're Christians, but they're imposters. I remember a couple from our last church, uh, still very, very dear friends of ours, uh, their testimony was this. When we came to this church, we thought we were Christians, but we were not. Now we are Christians. We don't know when it happened, but sometime between now and then, we've come to understand the truth of who Jesus Christ really is, and we've given our lives fully to Jesus Christ. And that is a reality that describes a lot of people. There are a lot of people in the body of Christ around the world who think they're Christians, who kind of act like Christians, but really have never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, have really never fully trusted in Jesus by his grace through faith. And so the writer to the Hebrews is describing, first of all, this kind of person in Hebrews 6. He says that this is somebody who has been enlightened. That means that they've seen the truth of the gospel. There are a lot of people who know that the, the gospel of Jesus is true, but they don't follow Jesus. There are a lot of people who have had that enlightenment. And this person has tasted the heavenly gift. And notice how he uses the word taste. When I taste food, I put just a little bit of it in my mouth. I don't take a big bite. I don't eat a whole meal of it. I'll taste it first. And so this is somebody who's tasted the heavenly gift. They've, they, maybe they've had a, a, a bit of an encounter with God. Maybe they've even said, you know, God, I'm going to repent for my sins. Uh, they've had a little taste of it, but they've not dived in for the full meal. They've shared in the Spirit. They've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit touches a lot of people who never follow Jesus. I know when I was a child, before I surrendered my life to Jesus at the age of 12, I had encounters with the Holy Spirit. I knew the Spirit of God, but I didn't know Jesus fully yet. And it's interesting that the writer here does not use the word that we translate as fellowship for sharing in the Holy Spirit. He uses a different word. And so this is somebody who's had an experience with the Holy Spirit. They know, they, they've sensed the reality of God. 
They've tasted the goodness of, of the Word. They've heard the Word preached. They've read the Bible. They said, wow, this is a good book. I like this book. I like what the preacher was saying. That really resonated with me. And they've tasted the power of the age to come. Maybe they've experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit. They've heard somebody give a prophecy or a word of knowledge, or they've been healed, or had some kind of encounter with God that demonstrate God's power. So this is somebody who has a lot of outward-looking Christian stuff, but they've never really dived in fully to the swimming pool of Jesus Christ. They've never really committed themselves fully on the journey of discipleship to say, I will be a follower of Jesus Christ. They're walking along the path, but there are a lot of people who walk along the path who then, as he says, fall away. And what is this idea of fall away here? Fall away in this context is somebody who intentionally and deliberately wanders from the path into error. Someone who intentionally and deliberately wanders from the path into error. And they stay in that wandering. It would be a bit like if I'm walking here and we're on this path here and I say, oh, wow, you know, this looks nice over here. I think I'm going to go there. Oh, you guys go ahead. I'm going to catch up to you and I'm just going to keep walking this way. And so they've made this decision to walk off the path. This is not the kind of thing where, say, Joshua and I are walking together and, and we're walking together and I'm saying, oh, wow, Joshua, that looks kind of cool. And then Joshua grabs me by my coat and pulls me back on the path and says, hey, Rod, get back on the path, man. Now, that's not the kind of wandering. This is somebody who would say, you know, if Joshua was trying to grab me by the, the collar, I'd say, John, get your hands off of me, dude. You know, don't bother me like this. I, I, I want to walk this way. You keep going down this path. I'm going to go this way. And that's the kind of person that the writer is talking about. Somebody who deliberately goes off the path toward Jesus into their own way, into their own wanderings. And this is the kind of person who falls away. And it's something that they've done in the past that continues into the present. They continue to reject God's love. They continue to reject God's ways. It's a bit like in football. I don't know what the player's name was, but there's one player on one of the teams who has fallen so much on purpose that there's a pub in Moscow that every time he falls, they give away free shots. And they've given away a lot of free shots. You know, it's a bit like that. You know, people who are taking an intentional dive, well, these people are intentionally diving and taking themselves out of the game. Uh, and the writer says, if you do this, there are consequences. And he talks about two particular consequences. First of all, if you wander deliberately off the path, there is no restoration. You come to a point in time as you start to go off the path where God says, fine, you go your way, but your way is leading to eternal judgment. And once they've made that decision, and once they've made that determination, there's no way that they're going to come back onto the path. And I've seen this so many times, so tragically. People that seem to have a touch from God and, and seem to know a lot of Bible and stuff like that, all of a sudden they just wander off. And it breaks your heart. And the writer says there's a second consequence, and that is you will not receive God's blessing. You lose God's blessing over your life, not only now, but in the future, because you're unfruitful. 
You're only bearing thorns and thistles. And so this first kind of person that's falling away, and we're seeing this in the world today, the first kind of person that's falling away is the person who intentionally wanders off the path and refuses to come back. And those people are not saved. Those people are not Christians. And the writer is warning Christians, don't be that. Don't be that person. So how do we not be that person? I'll tell you in a minute. Because I want to talk to you about the second kind of person that's being talked about, and that's the Hebrews 10 person. And the Hebrews 10 person, you'll see, is a different person, and you can tell that by his action. The Hebrew 6 person is intentionally wandering off the path, falling down, refusing to keep going. The Hebrews 10 person is engaging in persistent, willful, deliberate sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth. Now, there's a lot of things we can do that's wrong, but we don't know it's wrong. Oh, and that's not an issue with God. Yes, it's an issue because he doesn't like us to do anything wrong. But there's a whole lot of grace when, you don't do, when you're doing something wrong and you don't even know that it's wrong. I know there's a lot of people, for example, who come to faith in Christ, who are living together and they did, without being married, and they never even knew that it was wrong until they come to faith in Christ. Well, and God's got a lot of grace for that. God's got a lot of grace for that. He'll, he'll, he'll pick you up. But this person is the person who says, you know, I know that this is wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to keep on doing it. I know that this is not what God wants, but I don't care. I'm going to keep on doing it. Now, this is not, by the way, too, the person who is struggling with a particular sin issue, but they keep repenting. Now, there are a lot of people. I've known a lot of alcoholics in my day. Uh, I've not ever met an alcoholic who really wanted to be an alcoholic. But they sin by wandering into drunkenness, and then they might get drunk, but then they try to repent, and they try to come back, and they try to walk the path, and they get drunk again, and often they need help of something like AA. But the point here is this. It's not the fact that they keep getting drunk. It's the fact that they keep getting up, and they keep repenting, and they keep walking back to Jesus. That is an indicator that this, that person is not this person in Hebrews 10. The Hebrews 10 person says, I don't care to heck with this. I am going to do what I want to do, even though it's not what God wants me to do. And if we persist in willful, deliberate sin, there are serious consequences. And the writer says that there are three witnesses against this person because this person effectively who is persisting in willful, deliberate sin, this person is doing three things. He says he is trampling the Son of God underfoot. This is the idea of don't throw your pearls before swine because they'll trample on them. You know, so they're taking this goodness of God and all that God's offered in His Son and they're trampling it. They're taking the love of God and they're just trampling on the love of God. And they are making common the blood of the covenant by which we are set apart, by which we are sanctified. Now he's not saying that this person was sanctified in the sense that Christians are sanctified. The person is saying that the person was set apart, that God has said, yeah, come, join me in my journey. 
And the blood has, of Jesus has done that. The blood of Jesus has paid the price for that. But the person has instead just taken the blood of Jesus and dumped it out. And treated it like something to have a party with. Not something to cherish and honor. And so they've profaned, they've made common, they've treated as worthless the blood of Jesus by their willful, persistent sinning. And they insult, they mock the spirit of grace. Do you know, when you sin and you say, oh, well, that's okay if I sin because the grace of God covers me. That is a mocking of God's grace. That is a mocking of God's grace. One of the great, greatest books that, that I have in my library, and it's very precious because uh, nobody's ever heard of it, uh, but it is so powerful, and it's called God is No Fool. Uh, and some people say, you know, the love of God goes on, and, and it's grace, and that's the great comfort and everything. But, you know, God's not a fool. He knows when somebody's mocking him. He knows when somebody is dishonoring him. He knows when somebody has rejected him. And that's a serious thing. That's an extremely serious thing. And the consequences for this person who willfully, deliberately sins and persists in that sinning is there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. In other words, their sin is no longer paid for. All they have is a fearful expectation of judgment a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God's love. And they will experience the Lord's vengeance and the Lord's judgment. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in the world today, we are seeing these two kinds of people in the body of Christ everywhere. We are seeing those who are wandering off the path, following silly traditions and myths and things that are saying, well, I just want to do my own thing. Uh, I was just reading about a, a worship leader that I really liked, uh, and I hadn't realized this, but apparently he's become an atheist now. Yeah, and it just, you know, breaks your heart. You're seeing this, this wandering off the path. And I know some people are saying, well, I don't care what God says. I am going to live my life the way that I want to live it. I'm going to do the thing that I want to do. And the writer is saying here, that this is dangerous. That you must guard your heart and guard yourself against falling away. Because there's a lot of people who think they're Christians who will find out that they're not Christians. As Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be in the kingdom. There are a lot of people whose hearts are not really for Jesus. There are a lot of people who are not really following. There are a lot of people who treat Christianity as a game or a club or a nice experience or a clubbing kind of experience or a concert or an event or any number of things. And the writer is saying, be careful here because it's very easy to think that you're in and you're not. It's very easy to think that you're going the right way and you're not going. And he's not saying these things to discourage Christians. He's saying these things because as he says in chapter 6, for you, Christians, brothers and sisters, I am confident, I am sure that you're going to experience better things. 
And I know that those of who walk with Jesus and who persevere will experience better things as you live in faithfulness. Your high priest is faithful over you and your high priest is faithful over you so that you will live in faithfulness. And that's the encouragement. That's the challenge and that's the encouragement. So how do we know and how do we become sure of better things? What can we see in our lives? Now, we're not talking about works here. We're not talking about works righteousness. But we are talking about evidence. <clears throat> and the evidence that you should be looking for. If I'm in an orchard, I don't know my plants very well. So I like to be in an orchard when the trees are bearing fruit. Because then I can tell you what kind of fruit tree they are. Because I see the fruit. The fruit doesn't make the tree, the tree makes the fruit, and that's what the writer here is saying, and he's challenging us. So what does he say? And he gives us just a few things. He tells us first that we are people who endure, even when times are tough. Uh, I was not a big fan of Robert Schuller growing up for many years, but, uh, but I always loved one of the things he said, and I, I was at the Crystal Cathedral one time many, many decades ago, and he comes out and he says, tough times never last, but tough people do. And I love that. I love that. And that's what the writer here is saying. You'll endure. You'll endure. You'll keep going. Another evidence is that we repent. Do you know, if you have heartfelt, earnest repentance, that is an indicator to you that you're not a Hebrews 6 or a Hebrews 10 person. If you're repenting, if you're wanting to get closer to God, if you're hating your sin and wanting to separate yourself from it, no matter how much you struggle with it, the struggle is not what's important. What's important is the repentance because in the repentance you experience the power of the cross and you have forgiveness. Another evidence is that we go on to maturity. Uh, we grow at different rates. I know some people that grew a little bit until they got to be teenagers and all of a sudden they're up there. You know, I was more consistent in my growth to tallness. You know, but it's different ways and different people and different things. But the point is, if you're alive, you will grow. If you're not growing, you're dead. Something's going to happen. You will show your love for Jesus through what you do, especially as you serve other Christians. People who are really walking with Jesus will show it. You'll see evidence. They will demonstrate it. They will do good things to people, Christians and non-Christians, and they will serve Christians. They'll be passionate about serving one another. You can see this. You can show your earnestness that you're really pressing in. I just love the heart of so many people in our church who want to learn and they want to go and they want to grow and they're, they're pushing in and, and sometimes they don't do it perfectly or you know, sometimes we make messes. You know, who cares? If you're going to make a mess, just be earnest about it. I think that's what he's saying here. Because the God's grace does cover that. And we need to have faith and patience that we will get to the place that we're going to get. These things are indicators that we're walking in faithfulness 
and that we know the Lord Jesus Christ who is faithful over us. We need not fear eternal judgment, even though we need eternal judgment to remove everything that hinders love. We need not fear falling away or continuing in sin, but we must guard ourselves against doing either of these things. We need not fear that somehow we're going to lose our salvation and not even realize it. We need not fear that somehow God is going to turn and become angry with us, but instead we must press into the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because he is faithful to hold on to us and we must be faithful ourselves. I've often said we're called to be faithful and fruitful, but if I had to pick one, I'd pick faithful. Faithfulness is so important and faithfulness is for us through Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you that we do not have to fear. Thank you that we can be filled with faith. Thank you for all that you do for us. Now, Father, I pray that yet again, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you would renew in us a sense of your faithfulness in our lives. That as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, that we would remember all that Christ has done for us in the cross and the empty tomb. And we would remember how tightly Jesus is holding on to us to preserve us until the end. And Father God, I pray that you would alert us if there's anything in our lives where we're starting to wander off the path or anything in our lives where we're continuing in sin when we need to turn away from it, that you'd show us that by your Holy Spirit, not to condemn us, but to set us free and to move us forward. And I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would all go on to faithfulness and maturity in Christ Jesus together. Now I pray that you'd bless this bread and this cup, that they would be for us truly the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken and shed on the cross. Use them again to renew us in faith and remind us of your great love for us and your determination to remove everything that hinders love. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. And we do this all in Jesus' name. Amen.